invite you now to stand with me as we go to God's word. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. This is our second sermon in this uh, series. We're going to pick up in verse 2 and read down through verse 5 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all we have seen this morning, for new life celebrated in baptism, for uh, the testimony of Josiah and uh, what you're doing in and through the L family and their work in East Africa right now. We pray for them. We pray for Stephanie as she continues to carry on work this week while also watching four children amidst um, very severe lockdown in that country due to coronavirus. And then Josiah, as he travels to a nearby country to train pastors and church leaders. Would you bless them both? Bless that work. And we pray God continue to call our church to do things beyond ourselves, beyond these walls, beyond even our own borders. As we bring the gospel to the nations, we pray. Bless this time we spend in your word. Let us see these simple truths of gospel belief born out in our lives because you have changed us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were not with us last week, we began a new series entitled The Past, Present, and Future. This series is going to last for several months and take us through both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which were the first letters written by the Apostle Paul to the church. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back online. You can go to nazareth.com, go to recent sermons, and you can watch that. Because when I start a series, I kind of give an introduction both historically and textually to what we will see over the coming weeks in this series. We move away from the initial greeting of Paul where he identifies himself, Silas and Timothy, who were the mission team of Paul's second missionary journey, writing to the church at Thessalonica, And his offer of grace and peace, this marriage of grace, a Christian idea, and peace, salome, a a Hebrew idea, marrying these things together, which come from God. Now to the second part of the letter. It's going to take us two weeks to get through this uh, second part of the letter, which in a Roman letter would have most often been a prayer to a false god. That, that is what most commonly would have been in a first century letter. There would have been a similar identification of the sender, identification of the recipient. And then there would have been a prayer to one of or multiple gods within the Roman pantheon or even to the emperor himself. Paul obviously makes a change from the standard format. And in nearly every case, as he writes to the New Testament church, he offers thanksgiving to God for what he sees in the life of those believers. And that's where we will spend the next two weeks finishing out chapter one of 1 Thessalonians. This morning, looking at the evidence of 
gospel belief. Because this is how Paul begins his letter. He begins by offering thanks to God for what he sees as evidence of gospel belief. Now, there will be times, as there always are, as we progress through this uh, series in these two books, where we have to deal with difficult, somewhat deep ideas. Today is not one of those days. This is a sermon that every one of us should be able to understand. It should be something that every Christian in this room should identify with. And I'm going to call you at the end to self-evaluation, to ask this question, are these evidences of gospel belief present in my life? And you shouldn't have to think about it long. This is not going to be a difficult test today because these three things that Paul will present as evidence of gospel belief are basic Christian ethics. This is who we are supposed to be to our very core, that if we have believed the gospel, these will be marks of our lives. Paul says this, that faith, hope, and love are the evidence of gospel belief. Pick up in verse two. We give thanks to God always for you. Very common wording of Paul that he would go regularly to the Father, giving thanks to the churches to whom he writes, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, before our God and Father. So Paul puts this uh, clause in the middle saying we're praying to God, we're thankful to God. It is to God alone that we attribute this work in your life. Make no mistake about this, that it is to God that the one true God that Paul prays, it is to one, the one true God that he is thankful for. It is God who is at work in the lives of the Thessalonican believers. And he says this, we re- Uh, remembering before our God and Father first your work of faith. So Paul first highlights their faith, but not only the fact that they have faith, that they have professed faith, that they have come to faith, but that there is some type of evidence. Remember, this is what the sermon is looking at today, evidence. And Paul sees the evidence of their faith by saying your work of faith. Faith. First, let's define faith. Hebrews 11, chapter, or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, gives us the biblical definition of faith. The author of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Meaning that faith is a gift of God that causes two cognitive changes in our life. First, we become assured of that which we hope for. Now, I think the best example of hope is a young child on December 24th. I love preaching at our uh, Christmas Eve service, uh, which is obviously every December 24th, and as kids come in, you could just see this anticipation of hope in their life, right? They just really are hoping that something's going to happen the next morning. 
And here's what faith is. Faith means that we don't have to wonder about what we hope for. We don't have to be uncertain about what we hope for. We can be assured of what we hope for. There is this change that happens in our mind when we come to faith in Christ that gives us assurance of our hope but also a conviction of things not seen. Meaning the second change that happens in our minds is we become convinced of what we have not seen. When we come to faith in Jesus, we develop a bedrock of faith that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place for our sin. I did not see that happen. I didn't see Jesus' ministry happen on this earth 2,000 years ago. I wasn't there in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified alongside of other criminals. I wasn't there three mornings later when the tomb was empty and the angel said, he is not here for he has risen. I did not see that with my eyes, but I am as convinced of that fact as I am that you are sitting in front of me right now. Because that is a foundation That even though we have not seen, we become convinced of. This is what faith is in our lives. That when God brings about his faith in our lives, we become assured of that which we hope for and convinced of those things that we have not seen. So that's what faith is. But notice what Paul says. Paul says that he is remembering before God their work of faith, meaning faith is not this inoperable thing happening in their lives. Faith is not just an idea. Faith works. That's what he means by work of faith, that faith works. Now, often in his letters, Paul will contrast the idea of faith and works. But here, he puts these two ideas together, saying that one is caused by the other. So what's the difference? Why here in his first letter to the uh, Thessalonican church, likely his first letter that he writes to any church, does Paul tie together faith and works? But when we go to other letters, for instance, Galatians or Romans, do we see Paul contrast these ideas? When Paul is contrasting faith and works, he is contrasting the work of the law. That's what he often has in mind when he's writing to the the Galatians or the Romans or in other places, which is wholly unable to save and need not be followed by Gentile believers because works of the law are futile, Paul would say. No, here, Paul has the fruit of faith in mind. When he says the works of faith, what he is saying is that faith produces works. Faith is not idle. It will bear fruit. Now, likely the only New Testament book to exist when Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians is the short book of James. James was the brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He is the one who led the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, which Paul has just come from before he begins his second missionary journey. And in that, which reads as probably the most Jewish of all the letters in the New Testament, James also writes about this idea of faith and works. He says this in James chapter two, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Later in that same chapter, he writes, but someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith 
by my works. James is very clear. Works does not save. Faith does. But faith works. Notice something. And hear me clearly because I do not want you to walk out of this room confused. There is no work that you can bring about in your own life that can save you. There is nothing in this life that you can do well enough that will please God because your righteousness before God, uh, the Old Testament prophets say, is like filthy rags. We, we just can't conjure up enough good works to save ourselves. So this is not works of the law. This is works of faith that both Paul and James, writing to the early church, wholly agree on that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it becomes proven in our lives by our works. You see, we no longer do the things that we used to do. We're now doing things out of obedience to the one who has redeemed us from our sin. We're living in obedience to the one whose gospel has become the bedrock of our lives. Our works prove our faith. And Paul sees this in the life of these Thessalonian believers. And he says, I am thankful to God that there is work of faith amongst you. Second, and labor of love. Paul moves from faith to love. Now, I have to be clear of what this means because there is an American phrase in our language that is labor of love. You may have heard someone say this before. You ask somebody why they're doing what they're doing. Oh, it's just a labor of love. In that turn of phrase in our culture typically means a task done without consideration of reward. That we do it not hoping to get anything out of it, not hoping to get any kind of recognition, or even oftentimes it's used by people that are wanting to kind of turn the screws a little bit and say, well, I do this even though nobody's ever gonna even recognize that I'm doing it. That's not what Paul has in mind here. The word labor here, we often think would mean the same as the word work, but they're two different Greek words. And the word labor is actually a stronger word in Greek than the word work. It means to what Paul is saying here is that we have hard work that stems forth from love. The word labor in the original language denotes trouble and toil. That this is hard work. This is work that makes you tired. This is work that often brings difficulty. This is work that even embraces difficulty. You see, our faith leads us to do one kind of work. Our love leads us to do even harder work. So who is it that they are supposed to love? This is a good question to ask because we're just here in this third verse of the of the this new book. Who are these people being called to love? Well, if we look further in the book, we'll know. First Thessalonians chapter four, Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, Paul's saying a lot there. I want us to just focus on what he's saying about love. He starts by saying, we don't have to write to you about loving one another because you're already loving one another. 
right? That's a paraphrase of what he says there in verse nine. We don't have to do this and in into verse 10. We don't have to do this because you're already doing it. We don't have to write to you about love because you're already loving one another. Not only are you loving one another, you're loving all the brothers of Macedonia. So the greater area, you're loving everyone. But do you notice what he does in verse 10? After he says, we don't have to write to you about this, you know what he does? He writes to them about it. He says, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. To do what? To love more and more. To labor in love more and more. Now, why would Paul say, you're doing it so we don't have to write to you about it, but I'm still going to write to you about it and urge you to do it because love is hard. Works of love, labors of love are often very painful. And it's something we have to strive for and be reminded of constantly because here's the difference between work of faith and labor of love. Work of faith can be done outside of human interaction and relationship. Labor of love demands that we be in one another's lives. It demands that I be in relationship with you and you be in relationship with one another. For us to love one another, we're going to be working in one another's lives. Work of faith may happen outside of personal relationship, but labor of love is going to happen inside of personal relationship. And when we get into personal relationship, here's what we do. We open ourselves up for all sorts of hurt and pain, sorrow and grief. This is why Paul switches from the word work to the word labor, because he recognizes that there is trouble and toil when we love one another, and yet we are still called to love one another even though it's going to hurt, even though it's going to be difficult, even though people are going to let us down, even though we're gonna have to do harder work than we would outside of those relationships, even though it's going to require difficult conversations and the fear of rejection, even though it's going to mean all of this, Paul still says, labor in love. And one of the evidences of gospel belief is that we are willing to do that. There's this prevailing idea in American culture today that you can do Christianity outside of the context of a local assembly of God's people. Can I just tell you something? That is not what the Bible says. That is wholly an idea of culture. That if we are going to have evidence of gospel belief in our life, it demands that we love one another. And to love one another means that we work in one another's lives, that we labor together, struggling, knowing that it brings about hardship, but we do it anyway because we love each other. Third thing is steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope is the third thing that Paul calls these, this church to, but he says that they need to have steadfastness in their hope. Their faith works, their love labors, but their hope must remain steadfast. Most often, when we see the word steadfast used in the New Testament, it is used in conjunction with persecution. 
And the Thessalonian church was birthed in persecution. If you'll remember what I told you last week, as we saw in the book of Acts, almost immediately as the gospel began to spread in Thessalonica, the church was persecuted. Paul and Silas had to be removed from the city by the cover of night. There were riots in the city because of the gospel. And apparently, gleaning from these two letters in Paul, that persecution didn't stop just because Paul left. There'll be many times in these two letters that Paul will mention their persecution. And here's, he uses this word here, remain steadfast. To a similar church, just a couple of years later, likely, Paul writes to to the church at Galatia. He says, and let not us grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is why he says we have steadfastness of hope because hope looks towards the end. And the only way to not grow weary of doing good is to keep hope alive. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of trial, even in the face of labor of love. When it becomes most difficult, this is when our steadfastness is required. But this is not a foreign concept. In nearly every letter of Paul to the churches, he writes about steadfastness. Why? Because most of them were experiencing persecution. We, 2,000 years later, in a Western culture, act as if persecution is this foreign idea. We act as if it's this thing that shouldn't happen. Paul writes about it as if it is an assumed idea. Not that it may happen, but that it is going to happen. And when persecution comes, when trial comes, when suffering comes, when hardship comes, what do we do? We have steadfastness of hope. We are able to stand in the midst of it and say, I still believe in that which I hope for. I still believe in it. Back in that first letter of the New Testament church in James at the very beginning, James, the brother of Jesus says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is the steadfastness of our hope that endures in our lives in the face of all manner of persecution and trial and suffering. Faith, hope, Love are essential marks of Christian character. This is why to the church at Corinth, Paul says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. This should not be a difficult test for us Christians. Here in a moment, when we get to the final exam, you need to be able to look and say, yes, I can see faith, hope, and love in my life. I can see works of faith. That's how we see our faith. I can see labor of love. That's how we see our love. I can see steadfastness of hope. That's how we see our hope in our lives. But Paul is not done providing evidence of their belief. He transitions though from evidence brought about in our lives by faith, hope, and love to the evidence of the work that only God can do in our lives. Verses four and five focus on gospel belief as evidence of God's loving election. You may think Paul did this somewhat out of order, that maybe he should have talked about what God did, then talked about what they did, but you'll see the progression, and ultimately what Paul's going to do is he's going to draw one big circle and bring them all the way back. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, 
That word means brothers and sisters, assembly, the people, the Christians that he's writing to. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, this may be your first time to be with us, or maybe you haven't been here, or maybe you uh, have been here just for the last several weeks, and at least since I preached through Ephesians, and you say, wait a second, uh, is he really about to talk about election? Yes, I am, because number one, we're not scared of that word here at Nesman River, and number two, whenever the Bible talks about something, I talk about it. This doesn't have to be this thing that we get all pent up over, as so often Christians tend to do. I'm going to be able to explain this to you very clearly as what Paul says, but I want to also show you, he's going to say it again in 2 Thessalonians. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now there he's referring to this letter that I'm preaching here, 1 Thessalonians. Here's what Paul recognizes in both of these letters, that the people Paul is writing to were chosen by God to be saved and called to the salvation through the gospel. Now, what does it mean to be chosen by God to be saved? I just want to explain this to us quickly and clearly. The first is God did not choose you because you're special. He didn't choose you because of something you did. He didn't choose you because of the family you were born into. He didn't choose you because you're American. He didn't choose you because you, you, you were going to have the works enough. You had just the right stuff right? This isn't the military. He didn't choose you because you had the right stuff. You actually don't have the right stuff at all. And yet in Romans 5, he says, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die if there were such a thing. But God showed his love to us uh, in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we have to put ourselves in proper context. And to put ourselves in proper context means this, that even while I was dead in my trespasses and sin, Jesus died for me. So it's not based on anything I have done. Then we go to Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved Here's what Paul says to the Ephesian church. He said, it is based fully and completely on the love of God. It has nothing to do with your righteousness, nothing to do with the works that you would maybe one day do and everything to do with the love of God alone, which is why he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, we know brothers loved by God, people loved by God, that he has chosen you. It is according to the love of God. Now, a common objection and a question I'm gonna get in the lobby after the service, if I don't answer it now, is how can I know if God has chosen me? Because I began this by saying that this isn't difficult stuff. And some of you are like, wait, this has just got really difficult. No, it hasn't. We just make it more difficult than it needs to be. So how can I know if God has chosen me? Well, Paul answers that for us at the beginning of chapter five. 
Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Here's the answer to, so how can I know if God has chosen me? You can know that God has chosen you. You can know that Paul is not only describing the Thessalonican church, but he's describing this church and every other true church of God and the people that make up those churches because the gospel has come to you. And not just in word, meaning not just in proclamation, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Let's talk about some of those words quickly. First, the word gospel, which we use so often here, means good news. It's what the word means in the original language. It means good news. It wasn't a Christian word in the first century, though. It was a common word that everyone was aware of, most often associated with the imperial cult. Meaning, most often, when people in Rome heard the word gospel, they were receiving a message from the emperor himself. So proclamations from the emperor, things that were happening in the emperor's life, things the emperor were saying to certain provinces, these were called gospel messages. But these decrees of Caesar never changed a single life. Why? Because they were mere words. And this is why Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, because the message of Caesar for centuries, well, at least one century to this point, the use of the word gospel had been in use for at least uh, about a century at, at, at this time. The, the word of various Caesars had come to Thessalonica, but only in word. And here's what Paul says. We brought you the gospel. We brought you the good news. And it wasn't just in word, but what happened? There was power in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. Because it is only the Holy Spirit that can regenerate hearts. And that regeneration is evidenced in our lives by what Paul's already talked about. Faith, love, and hope. These Christians here, young in their faith, new to all of this, Paul says they are not wavering in their faith, but are of full conviction. This is the evidence. So you say, well, how can I know if I'm a part of this? Has the gospel come to you, not only in word, but by the power of the Holy Spirit changing your life? Are you fully convinced of these bedrock principles of the truth of the gospel? Are you of the faith? Again, we don't have to make this more difficult than it needs to be. We could just believe the Bible for what it says and recognize that if we have responded to the gospel, then we are beloved by God. Then he completes the circle. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Say, that seems like a little tag on this, a little different. In the next week's sermon, we're going to talk about them imitating Paul. But here, listen to what, put it in the context of what he's saying. Think about this as a circle. I'm thanking God because of your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, right? I'm thanking God because of the evidence of gospel belief in your life. We know gospel belief is in your life because God has loved you and God has chosen you to be uh, one of his children and that's evidence in your life. And we showed you when we were with you what that evidence looked like in our own lives. That's why he says this. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Paul's saying, we set the example for you. 
In the second chapter of this book, he writes, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our, our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is how Paul brings it full circle. He says, we didn't just proclaim a gospel to you. We poured ourselves out to you. We showed you our work of faith. We showed you our labor of love. We showed you our steadfastness of hope. We demonstrated these things for you. So this is how we know you're in the faith. This is the evidence we see because we showed you what that looked like and now it is alive in your life. So what? Simple question, church. Is there evidence of gospel belief in my life? Now, on your notes, you'll see there's a 2 Corinthians passage and a Romans passage. I'm going to switch those. Let me mention the Romans passage first. No, let me mention the 2 Corinthians passage first. I had it right in these notes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul gives an encouragement to the church that I think we all need to hear. He says this, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Examination is healthy. It is how we know we are in the faith or not. It is the evidence of gospel belief beyond a simple religious act. If I ask you this, so what question, is there evidence of gospel belief in my life? And what you immediately go to is, well, when I was nine, I walked down an aisle. I shook a preacher's hand. When I was 12, I went into the waters of baptism. If that's what you immediately go to, if you immediately go to a religious act, you need to ask another question. From that moment to this moment, is there actual evidence of belief? Not some work back there that I did that seemed religious, but is there truly, according to what Paul says here, faith, love, hope? Are these things really in my life or not? And if they are, then that is the evidence of gospel belief in your life. If there's not, then there needs to be further soul searching for you. There needs to be further examination and asking this question, am I really of the faith or have I been relying on some type of religious thing that I did at some point in my life and even ongoing religious activity that is in no way the works of faith, the labor of love or the steadfastness of hope. Now, let's say you answer that affirmatively and you say, yes, there is. You say, maybe I'm gonna live another year, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. How can I know if, if, if I'm gonna have to, if this has got to keep going in my life and this evidence has to keep building in my life, I don't know the future, right? But remember, faith makes us assured of things. And listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. He gives us hope. We're not meant to be left without assurance. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Both of those are past tense. These are people that were saved, right? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning when God looks at you, he sees the ultimate end result. So if on this day, you can look back and see the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating your life or having regenerated your life and bringing about the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope, know this, you will or God will see his work to completion in your life. So don't use this to doubt for those that pass the test, for those that don't. 
He said, there is no evidence of belief in my life. Maybe I've been relying on some type of past religious experience. Maybe I've been just relying on my own works. Know this, the offer of the gospel is free to you today. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Cry out to him, turn to him in faith and repentance, knowing this, that he is able to save you because you cannot save yourself. Oh, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not mere words, but the power of the Holy Spirit that can radically change your life. Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, for the life change brought about by the Holy Spirit and the evidence of our belief. I thank you that as I look out in this room, this church that I pastor, I see men and women, young people who demonstrate faith, love, and hope regularly in their lives. May we do so all the more. For those who honestly look in their lives and say, I just don't see it. I've been relying on something that I've been doing. I've never heard it put this way, I, I, and I need to believe. Would you call them to saving faith? Regenerate them now. Make them new. Justify them in your sight, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.